All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor, and um, welcome to Palm Sunday, right? Also the first day of spring, amazingly, right? We've had spring-like weather until today, and then it started snowing. How's that for ironic, right? Well, it matches the irony of our text this morning and the irony of Palm Sunday, to tell you the truth. Palm Sunday is, uh, we, we recognize it as the Sunday that begins Passion Week or the Holy Week. Palm Sunday is the Sunday in which Jesus entered Jerusalem, and the people all gathered and sang Hosanna to God in the highest and, and goodwill to men, and they laid palm leaves on the ground to basically lay the path of praise in front of Jesus as he entered the city. And um, six short days later, he's going to be crucified. And so as we enter into Holy Week, this is um, a very heavy and serious time in the Christian calendar, and I believe an appropriate time for us um, to bring our hearts and lay them bare. Um, And so this morning, we're going to be doing that. I'm going to invite you back Friday night. Friday night at 7 o'clock, we're going to be observing our Good Friday service. Um, Good Friday, of course, is the day. Thursday is the day that Jesus had his last supper with his disciples. It's where we get communion, which we celebrate every week. And then Friday is the day he was betrayed early in the morning and then crucified later in the day. And uh, and so when we gather on Good Friday, it will be for a service of, we call it a service of darkness. Um, It is a service of lament. It is a service of sorrow. It is a service in which we come together to worship God by seeing what should make us sad at being appropriately sad in its presence, honoring the sacrifice of Christ with a mourning that is worthy of his sacrifice. So gather with us. It's, it's, it's going to be um, a meaningful and deep experience, and, uh, and I believe a great way to help us prepare our hearts for next Sunday, which is Easter, Resurrection Sunday. And as we gather next Sunday, we're going to be celebrating the risen Christ and, um, uh, and all the joy that comes with that. Okay, this morning we're going to be looking at John chapter 3, verse 16 through 21. Um, So go ahead and grab your Bibles and open up there. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the floor around you. If you're using one of our Bibles, you're going to be going to page 888. John 3.16 is an incredibly familiar verse. The verses around it, not so much. (laughs) And so we're going to read John John 3.16 through um, verse 21 together. Um, and then we're going to unpack that this morning. All right, starting in John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The word of the Lord. 
All right, John 3.16, one of the most beloved verses in all of Scripture, one of the most well-known verses, um, and appropriately so. Uh, interestingly, I, I have a memory of this verse. It was, it was, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I wasn't raised reading the Bible. And, and um, there came a point when my mom was getting into the Christian faith and my brother and I wanted to get her a gift for Mother's Day. And we're like, there's that verse she likes. What's that verse she likes? And so we went to the, we were making her a license plate frame um, for a Toyota Celica, which I loved. It was an awesome little car. And, um, and I, we're, we're like, isn't there, there's like a verse. There's like a really, isn't it like a, I think it's a 316. Isn't there a 316 verse? And the guy's like, yeah, I think so. Is it like, I don't know, is it John 316? I'm like, that sounds right. No, wait, is, it, is there a 1 John? Might be 1 John 3. No, I think you're right. I think it's John 316. We got it right. We guessed John 316. Uh, surprisingly, um, I should have known it, right? I mean, every time you watch a football game, um, it's there, right? In the end zone between the goalposts, there's always somebody holding up a sign that says John 3.16, one of the most beloved verses in all of Scripture. With good reason, there's an incredible invitation in this verse. For God so loved the world. And the way this is often taught is, is what this means is that God loved the world, which means He loved you, right? For God so loved the world. That means for God so loved you. In fact, you can put your name in there. For God so loved Steve that he sent his one and only son. What an incredible invitation. If you were the only person to have ever lived, God would have sent his son for you. You are that great of a treasure to him. Now, there's nothing wrong with teaching it that way. In fact, I think it's perfectly appropriate, and I think it's fairly powerful. I think that is a very true way of approaching it, but I think it misses some of the tension of what John is saying here. I think what John is saying here is both more shocking and more comforting than that. It is a statement that God desires not just to be reunited with your heart on a personal level, but he will not be rejected. He will not be denied. He will completely realign humanity with his purpose and with his glory. So what does that mean when it says, for God so loved the world? What does, that, what does that mean? Does that mean that, that God so loved the people of the world? Does it mean for God so loved the creation, right? That, that all of his creation is a manifestation of his glory and he loves the earthly creation. What does it mean when it says for God so loved the world? The word world here is the Greek word cosmos. And the Greek word cosmos is not talking about the physical earth. In fact, it's not even talking about the people of the earth directly. It's actually talking about the systems that humans create to do life on earth. The word cosmos means an ordered system. For God so loved the world. Now, here's an interesting thing. He's talking about the culture, the human culture that we create to make sense of life our ability to to navigate the ins and outs, to find value, to discover purpose, to to assess worth, to evaluate beauty, all the systems we create in which to do life. Now, what's interesting is in the book of John, the world is always presented as hostile toward God. It's never presented in a favorable light once. John doesn't ever say the world is a friendly place to God. What it says is, For God so loved the world, but the world so hated God. 
The world system we've created stands in opposition to God. Verses 19 through 21 tells us why. In verse 19, it says, And this is the judgment. The light, that is Jesus, the presence of God, the glory of God made flesh, the light has come into the world, the cosmos, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. There is something in the exposure of our hearts that is repulsive to us. And we would rather reject the light than expose our hearts. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. I believe that's talking about Jesus, actually. Now, here's the thing. When we talk about worldliness, Christians get uncomfortable territory. Christians are like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I get worldliness. We shouldn't be worldly, right? Worldliness is bad. And, and what we often mean by that is we're talking about the dark side of human culture, right? The, the dark side, the, the bad movies, right? The bad music, the bad manifestations of human culture, right? Shouldn't be going to strip clubs, man. That's worldly, right? You shouldn't be listening to that kind of music. That's worldly. You shouldn't be drinking that kind of stuff. That's worldly. We, we define worldliness as the dark side of human culture. And then the solution then is to stay away from it, right? That kind of becomes the solution. The solution is you just stay away from the bad stuff out there and you won't get corrupted, right? Because garbage in, garbage out. You've ever heard that phrase? And we used to use it all the time, like in youth ministry, man. You got to stay away from that stuff. Garbage in, garbage out. So the solution is to keep the garbage out. You keep the worldliness out there. You read your Bible, you pray, and, and then it's all good, man. You do the good things, you cut out the bad things, and, and we're all good. But here's the thing, you guys. John means something way more than just the worst parts of human culture. He means all of human culture. All of it. When he says that the world is hostile toward God, he's talking about all the systems that we create to navigate through this life. The way we order life to make it make sense. Our financial systems, our political systems, our social systems, our personal systems, the way we assess and value worth, the way that we assign and give dignity, the way that we find our way and our position. It's all broken. It's all bent. And it's all hostile toward God. You're like, but Steve, man, come on, man. It's not all that bad, right? I look at my own heart. There's good intentions there. There's, there's, there's light to be redeemed, right? It's a glorious ruin, right? God created it. We messed it all up, but there's still glory in it. There's still good in it, right? It's not all bad, right? I work hard. I care for others. I don't do too many bad things. You must not be talking about me. 
All right, so we need to set the context for this discussion. We need to understand what I mean when I say that the systems of this world are bent um, away from God. We need to look at the beginning of the story because that's where everything went wrong. So take a look at this verse. This is actually Genesis chapter 1, and it's verse 31. Now, in Genesis chapter 1, we have the initial version of creation, right, which takes place over six days. And on the end of each day, God creates something. At the end of the day, he says, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then he gets to day six after he's created mankind, and he says this, and God saw everything that he had made. That now includes Adam and Eve, mankind, created in his image. And behold, I love that's the first time there's a command, because there's the first time somebody's there to listen to it and respond to it. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning in the sixth day. See, what's being described here is God looks at creation and says that it is very good. What he's saying is that all the pieces fit, and they're all playing the right note. There is a flourishing to life, a fullness, a balance, a harmony. Theologians call this the shalom of God manifest in creation. The word shalom is a Hebrew word that means peace, but it means a lot more than a lack of conflict. We often talk about peace and we mean, okay, at least we're not fighting. The word shalom means not just a lack of conflict, but the presence of flourishing, right? We're talking about uh, something that is marked by balance and harmony, right? All the different pieces of creation are all playing their own note, but they're all tuned to the same source, the glory of God. And because they're all tuned to the same source, it is a beautiful symphony, right? It is a beautiful, glorious hum to creation. It is shalom. It is an experience of life in its fullness, an experience of the flourishing of God, and the, excuse me, the flourishing of life in the presence of God, right? We've revolved around the glory of God. We, we stood in the light of His presence. We were responding to the outpouring of His love. Adam and Eve walked in total dependence on God, perfectly at peace with their Creator, with no need to compete or to mark themselves out. They didn't, they didn't have any, right? They were completely dependent. They knew that even as they worked the soil, the soil itself was a gift of God, and anything that came from the soil was a gift from God. They realized that their very essence and being was dependent on the presence of God. The very breath they breathed was a gift from God, and they were not at, uh, ill at ease with that. They weren't in, like, I have to be dependent. I have to mark my own way. I have to, they were completely at ease, completely dependent because God was completely trustworthy. God provided for their needs. God protected them. God secured them. They found their worth in the glow of his glory. They were at peace with themselves. They were at peace with each other. They weren't in competition. Life was not uh, a a world of, of diminishing resources where I have to protect and get my own um, and it wasn't just because the world was big. It was a way of looking at the world. They understood that, that God was the one who secured their identity and marked them as worthwhile. God was the one who provided for them and protected them. They lived in complete joyful dependence on God. They were at peace with God and they were at peace with all of creation. Right? All of creation. There was a glorious hum. This means that it was as it was meant to be. It was as it was meant to be. But they didn't stay there. They rebelled against God. We know the story. Um, They rejected God's authority. They rejected His presence. They broke shalom with God. 
And when they rejected God at the center and said, we will be like God, we will be at the center, we'll live for our own ends, we'll live under our own authority, we'll live by our own terms, they lost shalom not just with God, but with every, every, every other critical area of life. They lost shalom with themselves. They were no longer at peace with themselves. Suddenly, that inner voice that was both prideful and absolutely critical was born. You suck, you suck, you suck. You don't measure up, but at least you're better than him. You lost shalom with others. Instead of having a fruitful, flourishing community, you now had competition. The family unit, which was meant to be uh, one of the most peaceful and joyful experiences of human community in which each one lived for the other and gave to the other and joyfully laid down their life, now became a competition of limited resources, limited time, limited energy, limited sleep. It became a battlefield. They lost shalom with the created order. The, word, the ground that was supposed to willingly yield to the hand of its steward now rose up against it. Their own bodies rose up against them. Thus was born every form of pathological disease and difficulty. They lost shalom. But here's the thing, you guys. I want you to hear this. They lost shalom, but they still craved shalom. They lost the experience of the flourishing of life, but that didn't change the fact that they were created to experience it. So now they had an appetite for something they couldn't consume. That appetite to experience the shalom of God didn't go away just because they lost the experience. The appetite remained. So they had to find a way to pursue it. They had to find a way to experience the flourishing, life-giving presence of God without God. They had to find a way to experience the shalom of God without the presence of God. So we created systems to try to regain the shalom of God without the presence or the authority of God. We rejected God's system for finding life and joy and rest and purpose. But that didn't change our desires. We still had a God-given desire for the flourishing, the experience of the flourishing of life. But we had rejected the God who causes life to flourish. So we created systems of independence. Instead of dependence on God, we created systems of independence from God. We created systems not that revolved around the glory of God, but revolved around self-glory. We created systems that didn't depend on the provision of God, but depended on on our self-centered purpose and drive and self-centered glory. And, And ultimately, we made ourselves the center of all of our systems. We created systems ultimately trying to do life without God where God's glory wasn't the center and his presence wasn't the goal. So our financial systems, our political systems, our social systems, our way of ordering life, our way of distributing power, our way of measuring value, our way of giving influence, all the way down to our personal systems, our way of evaluating and establishing self-worth. What makes me important? What makes me valuable? What makes you important? What makes you valuable? All of those systems are corrupted. They reflect our desire to experience the flourishing of life without the God who causes life to flourish. So when we're talking about the world, I want you to see that we're speaking about the invisible systems in which we all operate. 
They guide our behavior. They control our, our choices. We, we are part of those systems. We've inherited them, and we shape those systems. But we swim in the stream of those systems regardless. They are the way we have together collectively decided to do life apart from God. So worldliness isn't just the dark part of human culture. And we don't avoid worldliness by simply staying away from the bad part of town. We are the bad part of town. It's not out there. It's in here. Worldliness is our hell-bent desire to be autonomous and independent from God. Worldliness is our hell-bent desire to establish our own glory, live for our own purpose, find our own way, and measure our own worth. And all of our systems are built around that. To get what only God can give in ways that exclude Him from giving it. To experience the shalom of God on our own terms. We are by default worldly. Every one of us are born separate from the presence of God, craving the shalom of God, what His presence, only His presence can give. This, by the way, explains all human behavior. Why do we do bad things? Why do we do stupid things? <laughs> Why do we do self-destructive things? You know what I'm saying? Like you wake up the next morning, like, what was I thinking? You know why? Because you had a craving for the shalom of God. And you were deceived into thinking that that's how you would get it. See, that's what sin does. Sin comes in and it deceives us into thinking, okay, this is finally the path. This is finally the, the way. This is finally the answer. If you just do this, if you just go here, if you just perform, if you just whatever it is, then, then you'll experience life in all of its fullness. Then you'll finally feel worthwhile. Then you'll finally feel secure. Then you'll finally feel beautiful. Then you'll finally feel whatever it is that you're desperately needing to feel. It explains our bad behavior. But what's scarier than that is it also explains our best behavior. Why do we do good? Right? What, are, what is it all about? What's with those best moment things? You know, like we all have this idealized image of ourselves where, where we see ourselves at our best and we like to think that's our true selves. All that other stuff's an aberration. That, that's that other stuff. I just kind of disappointed myself, let myself down. This is my true self. This is myself at, at my best when I'm self-sacrificial, when I'm noble, when I'm brave and courageous, when I am standing up straight and full of self-confidence. All right, this is hard, you guys, and we hate to see it because it seems like our worlds will be undone. But what I want to tell you is when you dig down, when you really dig down, what you're going to find is that it's not your sort of bad behavior that's motivated by the loss of shalom, it's your good behavior. Why do you sacrifice for others? Why do you do it? We all do it to some degree or another. Why do you do it? Well, because they need it. Because I'm a good person. Because I'm noble. Because I can. Uh, no. You do it because it makes you feel good. You do it because you're trying to experience shalom apart from the presence of God. 
You're like, Steve, that's quite the accusation. Well, let me ask you something. When's the last time you had an unlimited well of sacrifice? When's the last time, you know, you see somebody and they're in need or they're lonely and they seem to be isolated and you're like, oh, I feel sorry for that person. They don't have what I have, so I'm going to go spend time with them. I'll go invest in them. I will go share my resources with them. And then you find the closer you get, the needier they are. Ever been there? Right? And so you feel like you're being sucked into the black hole of their need. And finally, you're like, okay, where's the back door on this thing? Where's the eject button? Right? You know what I'm saying? See, what you've just discovered is that point where your sacrifice is exceeding your payback. What you're having to give up is starting to outweigh what you're getting back. And as soon as you cross that line, you want out. You know why? Because you're not really doing it for them. You're doing it for you. Your best works are motivated by selfish, sinful desires. It's still about you. Why do you give? Why do you sacrifice? Why do you... Because it helps you believe the lie that you desperately want to believe. I am worthwhile. I am good. I am significant. I am better. See, we do it because we desperately need to love ourselves. And the reality is we have a really hard time doing it. Because every time we get a genuine glimpse of our own hearts, we are filled with despair, self-loathing, and self-hatred. And we can't go there. We can't go there. But the reality is, the reality is, you guys, we use people. We use people. What is this thing we call love? You make me feel good about me. I fall into love. Why? Because you make me feel good about me. Right? And then we get really, really resentful when the sacrifice start exceeding the payback. Marriages crumble. Relationships dissolve. Parents turn on their own children. We use people. And we try to use God to convince ourselves that we really actually are glorious and good. All I'm telling you is what Isaiah told us ages ago. Take a look at this verse. This is from Isaiah chapter 64. Isaiah was given prophetic insight into the human heart. In other words, the Spirit of God gave him the ability to see through all the smoke and through all the deception and all the pretending. And this is what he said, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Isaiah is speaking with prophetic clarity. He's been given eyes by God to see past the... See, we get blinded by our own self-deception. We don't see the systems that we work in. We don't see how they work on us or how we're working them because of our pride and our fear and our shame. We, We have ways of protecting ourselves. Isaiah is given a prophetic piercing view to the reality, and it is terrifying, terrifying. 
When he says, we have all become like one who is unclean, he's speaking specifically about leprosy. Leprosy was a skin disease that was, you couldn't hide it because your skin was actually literally rotting off your body. And during that period of time, somebody who had leprosy was somebody who was seen as cursed by God because there was no way to hide their shame. So obviously they must have been rejected and cursed by God. And they would have to walk through the streets with their hands in the air crying out, unclean, unclean, unclean. They had to announce what their skin made plain. Stay away from me. I am unworthy. I don't measure up. I am disgusting. I deserve to be alienated and separated from the common humanity that surrounds me. They became the living embodiment of every person's personal fear. What Isaiah says is as you walk by the other side of the street to protect yourself, as you walk by the other side of the street pitying them in their low estate or maybe feeling repulsed by them and their disease, you are diseased. You're leprous. You don't see it. You can't esteem it. Your systems have blinded your eyes to the reality of it. But if you could see with prophetic clarity, you would see what God sees. You are unclean. And those garments you put on, those good deeds that you do, the way you cover yourself with your resume, you know how you lead out with your resume, the best parts about yourself? Kind of make sure people know this is who I am, this is what I've done. This is what measures up. This is why you should esteem me. This is why you should love me. This is why you should admire me. This is, why, this is why you should follow me. This is why you should find me beautiful or attractive. Those pieces, you know, all that white stuff you put on you, those garments, they are polluted. Literally covered with the worst, most repulsive forms of human excrement. You don't see it. You can't smell it. But that's reality. That stuff you take pride in, it's your shame. That stuff that you think leads out your resume that makes you important or worthwhile or beautiful, it's repugnant. This is hard stuff. How does this apply to us today? Well, looking at my Facebook feed and considering the nature of our current uh, cultural environment. Here's this for an application. You who look down on the greedy capitalists and despise their self-interest and their self-glory, their self-serving ways and their manipulation of a system that is geared for their advancement, you are driven by greed. You who look down on the lazy socialist and despise their entitlement and their lack of initiative, that stuff that you look down on you are driven by your own entitled desires to protect yourself and be comfortable. That stuff that you look to to make yourself feel better than others is a false pride and a false covering. And all your hard work and all your activism and all your clever arguments, all your sacrifice and devotion, your best works when the lights are turned on, are leprous and you are covered in your own excrement. Is it any surprise that people don't like the light? 
Is it any surprise that when the light came into the world, people loved their darkness instead of the light? I mean, who can, ex- who can stand this kind of stuff? You know what I'm saying? Like, like it's one thing to, to get a glimpse of it occasionally. And the reality is, even right now, we're getting a very, very, very tiny glimpse into the depravity of our own souls, into our own brokenness. And who can stand it? It fills us with shame. It fills us with regret. It makes us start questioning everything about what makes us worthwhile and valuable. And we start questioning everything. What, what are we supposed to do with that? Well, the answer, apart from the grace of God, is to turn off the light. Because we're more comfortable in the darkness. We don't like to be exposed in our shame. We don't like to see ourselves as we actually are. We don't like to have the foundation of our confidence, the foundation of our self-esteem, the foundation of what makes us beautiful or important crushed from beneath us. No wonder we hate the light, cry for it to be turned off. Who can stand when the foundation of our self-worth is exposed as a sham and a lie? Well, the answer is Christ can. Because his foundation is true. And where ours is flawed and deeply corrupt, while the systems we create are are corrupt and bent toward our own glory and our own advantage, God so loved the world. What a profound statement. in all of its self-interest, in all of its hostility toward him, and all of its attempt to get from him all the benefits of relationship without actually having to have a relationship, of de-godding God and trying to rob him of the dignity of his personhood. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. On a personal level, this is very real. God loves you in spite of your mess. It doesn't matter what you did last night. I mean, I suppose it does in certain ways. There are always consequences to our choices. But God's not looking at you to perform before he approves. He's not waiting for you to measure up before he loves you. He loves you in spite of what you've done and in spite of who you are. For God so loved the world. And he knows that even as you sin, even as you participate in bad things and you do evil, the reality is you are at your deepest level still motivated by a desire for shalom. Even in your most broken outworking of that, where you're trying to find that flourishing of life in all the wrong ways, in all the wrong places, God still loves the root desire because he placed it in you the desire for the flourishing of life, for the shalom of his presence. Our desires are bent, but he loves the root and the source of those desires because they are at their root good. They're just bent. They are desires that when straightened out will lead us back to him and will lead us into humble dependence and revolving once again around the glory of his kingdom instead of our autonomy 
our independence, our self-worth. God loved. So God gave. All right, this morning we remember Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is a day of ridiculous complexity to me. The irony. Um, Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem and his path was paved with the praises of men. What were they praising? As they sang out Hosanna to God in the highest, as they praised God for Jesus, who were they really singing to and what were they really singing about? Because in six short days, Jesus will be crucified. Where are these people? Some of them are probably in the crowd crying, crucify, crucify. Some of them are shamed by their need for self-protection and their desire to protect their own life, their own kingdom, their own flourishing. They're in the shadows while the author of life is delivered up to death. The king of glory is delivered to shame and humiliation and they're cowering in self-protection. While they sing the praise of God, they are filled with self-interest, self-focus, and self-devotion. They are not singing praise to Jesus. They're singing praise to the fact that they think they can use Jesus. Here's the means to my end. Finally, my kingdom will be established and my will will be done. Finally, there's somebody to deliver us from Rome and their oppressive rule and to deliver my nationalist zeal and pride into the freedom of being who I want to be. The road to the cross was paved with the praise of men. And that says a lot about the praise of men. God so loved the world. Even then, as they, in a duplicitous way, in a hypocritical way, in a self-serving way, in a self-deceived way, pretended, they didn't know they were, but pretended to sing the praise of God, even as their hearts were working the betrayal of the Son of God. And if we don't see ourselves in that crowd, we are not seeing ourselves accurately. If we do not see ourselves among those who have betrayed and delivered up Christ, we are warped by our pride. And we think we somehow are like Jesus instead of like everybody else. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him, whoever would simply come to trust in him instead of themselves, to believe that God loves you in spite of you, that God is not put off by you, God is not repulsed by you, God is not impressed by your best you, and he is not repulsed by your worst you. He loves you. He who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will not perish but have everlasting life. 
I've always found that an interesting phrase because Scripture teaches us that we're all eternal beings. We are created in the image of God, and, and once you are born, you are eternal in nature. So what does it mean that we receive eternal life? Obviously, it doesn't mean a length of days. We already received that. That's our right as those who are created in the image of God. I don't think it's talking about a duration of life. I think it's talking about a quality of life. When it says they shall inherit eternal life, everlasting life, he's talking about life in all of its fullness. He's talking about life and the flourishing of life. He's talking about shalom. Those who believe in Christ will be restored to the shalom that they lost in their rebellion. Not by their performance, not by their works, not by their effort, not by their ability to profess, uh, impress themselves or anybody else, but because God so loved the world. He gave a son that he will deliver you from your insane self-sufficiency and pride and restore you to the freedom of humility and dependence so that you can rest in him instead of striving in yourself. So as we close, I want to consider the irony. We picture Jesus riding into the city surrounded by all these people singing praises to God. He could see through the deception. He knew their hearts. And it was part of his plan. If we were there knowing what we know now, the solution would be for us to step up and say, wait, Jesus, let me, solve, let me, let me save you from what's coming. Wait, Jesus, don't do that. That's going to take you to the cross. Don't go there. Because that was, a, that was a part of God's plan. God worked through the rebellion of man and the crucifixion of his son to save man from their rebellion. It's part of God's beautiful, sovereign plan. So if we were there, what would be the appropriate response? What about the disciples after the resurrection when they looked back to Palm Sunday because they were part of the, they were part of the praising? They were part of the hoorah and the joy and the yes, yes, yes. And they looked back. What do you think filled their heart? I think it was remorse. I think it was sadness. I think it was lament. A crying out to God. How do you think the father felt as his son was led into the city on the praises of men, knowing those were the same praises that would deliver him to the cross? How do you think the father felt? In that moment, if you were able to be there and simply lament the loss of God's glory, the sorrow of the ruination of man, I think you would find yourself looking eye to eye with God as he also was filled with sorrow. Lamenting the loss and the ruination of his image in the people that he created. But God so loved the world. He gave. When we see that kind of love, when we see that kind of love, It doesn't provoke us to triumphalistic celebrations of our power, our hope, and our ability. It leads us to despair in ourselves, celebrate his glory, and lament that there is a gap between what is and what should be. When I look at my own heart and I see what is and I know what should be, it should 
lead me to lament. When I look at the world and I see the gap between what is and what should be, it should lead me to lament. When I look at my relationships and I know what I should be and I know what I am, it should lead me to lament. See, conviction is a necessary and important part of our walk with God and I often want to end my sermons at a point of conviction to lead us to repentance and growth in our walk with Christ. But you know what? Lament is just as necessary. Palm Sunday was a necessary part in all of its wicked irony to God's redemptive plan. You want to know how we honor today? We do it with tears. We do it with lament. We do it by identifying the wickedness of our heart with the wickedness of those who delivered Christ to be delivered to the cross. We lament. And we cry out. That's not a lament of hopelessness, that, that we're unfixable. It is a lament of hope because we come to the very one who can fix us. We come to the very one who died and was risen or raised again so that we might be delivered and made new. But that doesn't change the fact but there's still a brokenness to be lamented. There's still a gap between what is and what should be. God is glorified by our sorrow as we see his beautiful, humble love contrasted with our insane lust for self. When we see what is bent and broken and we grieve, not only because it is bent and broken, but because God's image has been marred and his character has been misrepresented. Guys, think about this. Jesus forgave those who tortured him and he forgave those who killed him. And it was because he saw, even as their hardened hands drove the nails into his wrists, into their hardened, twisted hearts. And he could see hearts that were created by God. And he could see his own image twisted and marred by sin. And he could see at the root, as bent and twisted as it was, a desire for shalom. He could see in their hatred of him a hatred of themselves. He could see in their desperate longing for shalom a desperation. So what is the proper response as they self-righteously condemned him, the son of righteousness? Lament. That's what he offered them. In that moment, he lamented their brokenness. Even as they broke him, he lamented their pain even as they inflicted pain on him. There is a crying out in lament, Lord, this is not the way it should be. This is not the way it should be. And you're the one who can set it right. And you're the one who has robbed when it is set wrong. This is not the way it should be. When we see the way the loss of shalom plays out in our lives. We should be driven to lament. 
because God is glorified as we simply come to him and mourn that his glory is missing and we are suffering as a result. This plays out in a myriad ways, you guys. When my good friend died suddenly from a heart attack and I was asked to speak at his funeral and I'm commissioned with the job of bringing comfort to people when I myself am desperate for comfort. I choked out a lot of words, but I think the most meaningful thing I said there was, this is not the way it is supposed to be. A man is not supposed to be robbed of his friend. A wife is not supposed to watch her husband die. A son is not supposed to be robbed of his father in the prime of his life. This is not the way it is supposed to be. When our sisters and our daughters despise themselves because of the pressure of body image, their metabolisms work differently than others and they feel the shame and the condemnation and the weight. And there are others who heap the shame on them in their own shame and condemnation. This is not the way it is supposed to be. When a man is haunted by the nagging sense that he is not enough, he will never measure up, that he will be found out as a fraud, that he must push and perform and excel and pretend and impress, or others will discover he is a failure. This is not the way it's supposed to be. When the political landscape is dominated by demagogues and deceivers, manipulators, narcissists, and fear mongers, this is not the way it is supposed to be. When a child's worth is measured by the color of his skin. This is not the way it is supposed to be. As we swim in the currents of the river of life and some people enjoy the benefit of the currents of privilege and power and security and affluence. And they look down on those who are caught in the cross currents of socioeconomic challenge, racial and familial challenges. This is not the way it is supposed to be. when we use our religious behaviors to make us feel good about ourselves and better than others, to work hard enough so that we can thank God for our Savior, but thank you very much, we don't need Him very much. When we are moral, not because God is holy and finds delight in His image in us, but instead we're moral simply because we want to feel better about ourselves. We like to compare ourselves, to affirm ourselves, to pad our spiritual resumes. We want to think more highly of ourselves compared to others. This is not the way it is supposed to be. When we serve others or sacrifice in some way, not out of love for them or to give glory to God, but because it makes us feel good, about ourselves and to expand our own glory. This is not the way it is supposed to be. When a person harbors repulsion, hatred, resentment in their hearts toward another person who is created in the image of God because of the color of their skin or because of their religion or heritage, because of their nationality or because of their sexual orientation or because of their political preferences. This is not the way it is supposed to be. When we obsess over the injustices we have received, but we don't think twice about the injustices we have inflicted on others. When we treasure that pain we received when we were hurt by so-and-so, but we never think about how we hurt them, this is not the way it's supposed to be.
This world is not the way it's supposed to be. Our hearts are not the way they're supposed to be. For all of our defensiveness, all of our posturing, all of our pretending, all of our lies. You guys, there's room for conviction and repentance and there's a time. But I think there's first a need for lament. To not just assess and fix, but to see and in the seeing to be undone in the sorrow, and in the sorrow to see God, and to meet him in his sorrow over our brokenness, and there to be comforted, to admit that we are part of systems of injustice, of self-glory and deceit, knowing that we are both shaped by them and are shaping them. And that even so, we are not rejected because God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is profoundly good news. I just don't think we're going to really understand how good of news it is until we're willing to look at how bad the problem is when we allow the grace of God to come in and expose all the parts of our hearts that we want to keep hidden. Believer in Christ, that is an invitation to freedom. That is an invitation to dignity. That is an invitation to stand on the record of Christ and to bask in his acceptance and his love of you. It is not your place of self-condemnation. It is not your place to beat yourself down or to hide those pieces of you despise. God sees them. He loves you. If he could look at the person who was nailing his wrist to the cross and see in them the lost dignity that was theirs by right as those created in the image of God, he can look at you in your pain. He can look at you and your and your self-despising. He can look at you and call out what he put there. An innate dignity and a beauty and a strength that is yours. It was yours by creation. You lost it in rebellion, but it is yours in Christ. Because he died your death. He suffered your penalty. He took all the bad stuff of the world on himself and became the embodiment of your rebellion, dying in your place so you could be forgiven. I'm going to invite you back Friday night, 7 o'clock. We're going to have a season uh, or a a service of of lament. And it's going to be an hour in music and in scripture. What we're going to do is simply open up our hearts to lamenting the brokenness, to sitting in the darkness that we might be comforted, that we might hear. I love you. So join us. And then Sunday, man, we get to celebrate Easter and the resurrection of Christ. And I think as we prepare our hearts in, in looking at this stuff and sitting in this stuff, man, we're going to be better prepared to enter into the true joy of the resurrection of Christ. So join us. I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. I'm going to put a, our scripture up on the screen and ask you just to let the Spirit lead you.
whether you need comfort or challenge, whatever it is, I don't know. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that, uh, man, you love us. You see us as we actually are, not as we pretend to be. You see us as we actually are, not as how we see ourselves. And you are not put off. You are not alienated by our sin. You are not repulsed by our self-serving, pretending fronts. You are not put off by our pride. You love us. And you love what you put in us. And you love what you created us for. So much so that you gave your son. Move our hearts to awaken to love in response to that kind of love. To find the true gift of gratitude in the face of that kind of grace. Give us the courage to come out of our hiding in our shame, our pretending and our self-glory, to stand boldly in humility, knowing that because you love us and you declare us right, we are right and we are loved. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.